Welcome to our Catechism class. It's a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help you learn Christian doctrine with a warm and practical application. Each lesson has its own study guide, and the web link to find that guide can be found in the episode notes. Okay, let's start the lesson. Welcome to our Catechism class. We've been looking at the Catechism's teaching on the sacraments. We have spent some time on baptism. And we're now looking at the second of the two ordinances, at Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper. We began last time by considering our participation in the Lord's Supper. What we do. We take the bread and wine and we eat them or we drink them. And we find that in doing so, we were obeying the command that Jesus gave to his disciples to take, eat. And with the help of the Catechist, we explored the spiritual significance of those two acts. We're going to move on now to Lord's Day 28, question 76, where the Catechist asks us, What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? What's the meaning of this? Our reply should be, first, to accept with a believing heart all the suffering and death of Christ, and so receive forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Second, to be united more and more to his sacred body through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us. Therefore, although Christ is in heaven, and we are on earth, yet we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and we forever live and are governed by one spirit, as the members of our body are by one soul. So in this lesson, we want to think about the words of our Lord Jesus, when he said in John 6, verse 58 to 56, Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. So, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Let's start with some early church history. The first Christians lived in a deeply pagan society, a society with multiple pagan gods and deities. But the Christian church stood out as different from every other religious group, and they soon came to the attention of the authorities and found themselves accused of three specific crimes. Atheism, incest and cannibalism. How strange. Let's look at these briefly, and you'll see their relevance for this lesson. They were accused of atheism, because these Christians refused to acknowledge any other Lord but the Lord Jesus Christ. The later Roman emperors believed that they were in some sense divine, 
above other men by right of their birth and their office, and they expected every person in the empire, at least nominally, to offer an oblation, an act of worship directed to Caesar, just a small pinch of incense on a burner when asked to do so. Now that didn't stop them from worshipping their preferred pagan deity, it was just something extra. The Jews were exempt, being an ancient religion. But what about Christians? Originally the church was regarded as little more than a Jewish sect, but the Jews were more than vocal in their rejection of that idea. So Christians were required, like every other person in the empire, to declare that Caesar is Lord and give him a sacrifice. Needless to say, they refused. Only Jesus is Lord. Christians don't believe that Caesar is Lord, and most were not prepared to say that he was, and so they were charged with unbelief, with atheism. And then they were charged with incest. How strange was that? I think it was the language of Christianity that brought this suspicion to the minds of their accusers. They noticed that these Christians often referred to each other as brothers and sisters. Even husbands and wives spoke of themselves in, in these terms. Did Christians marry and have children with their siblings? Why were they calling themselves brother and sister? Isn't that incest? Well, you can already see that the secular and pagan Roman authorities have very little idea of what Christians believed and they allowed their ill-informed prejudices to drive them to suspicion and persecution. And then cannibalism. And it's that third accusation in charge that really concerns us here. The Roman authorities were convinced that these Christians had a ceremony in which they eat human flesh and drink human blood. What they were actually doing, of course, was simply having a communion service they were reciting the words of Jesus at the institution of the Lord's Supper, as we do to this day, when they said, This is my body which is broken for you. This do ye, as oft as ye eat it, in remembrance of me. The pagans took this literally, and the charge of human cannibalism was levelled against Christians. Yet Jesus did say in John 6 and 54 to 56, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now we cannot ignore a text just because it's difficult. Martin Luther, moving away from the Catholic Church, didn't shake off all of its beliefs around the doctrine of communion. Luther did not believe in transubstantiation like the Catholics do, but he did believe in the real presence of Christ in the bread and wine. His argument was that Christ's body is ubiquitous, that Christ is everywhere, and so he must be in the bread and wine. It's a doctrine that is held by Lutherans to this very day. They take the words, this is my body, literally. We have already looked at that when we asked the question, where is Jesus now, in Lord's Day 18. And we learned then that Jesus is not physically present in this world. He's not in the bread and wine, and that the elements of the sacrament remain no more than bread and simple wine. For the resurrected body of Christ cannot be in two places at once. 
when the woman came to the empty tomb, the angel told them, He is not here. He is risen. Jesus is physically in his resurrection body in heaven and present on earth through the Holy Spirit. John 16 and verse 28 says, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again I leave the world and go to the Father. The Catechist is writing to present a statement of faith to which both the Reformed and the Lutheran Christians in the German Palatinate can subscribe. But on this he is firm. Both in Lord's Day 18 and here in Lord's Day 28, the presence of Christ in the elements is spiritual, not corporeal, not physical. So what did Jesus mean in John 16 and verse 28? And what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? In his commentary on the Catechism, the author Zacharias Ursinus notes four spiritual truths that are implied in the words of Jesus. To eat his body and drink his blood is to have faith in Christ's sufferings and death for our sins on the cross. To eat his body and drink his blood is to believe that our sins are forgiven. To eat his body and drink his blood is to be in union with Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit. To eat his body and drink his blood is to be regenerated by the same Holy Spirit quickened and given new life in Christ. In the Catechism itself, he expresses it like this. To accept with a believing heart all the suffering and the death of Christ, and so receive forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Like every biblical text, the words of Jesus in John 6 need to be placed in context. Before Jesus talks about eating his body and drinking his blood, he explains the meaning of what he is about to say in John 6 and 51. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus is simply using the analogy of bread to illustrate the essential nature of his importance to sinful humanity. He is to the soul what bread is to the body. He is the giver of life. And this spiritual body and blood, represented in the bread and wine, speak to us of our continuing part in his body, which is his invisible church, the church that only God knows and sees. John 6.55 says, For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. We are united to Christ through his atoning death on the cross and through his indwelling Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. We are, says the Catechist, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and we forever live and are governed by one Spirit as the members of our body 
are by one soul. Paul references this eternal aspect of our union with Christ in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26. He says, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And in Colossians 3 and 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So Ursinus in his commentary concludes like this, It is plain, therefore, that neither the doctrine of transubstantiation which the papists advocate, sorry, that's his words, nor a corporeal presence of Christ and the eating of his body in the bread with the mouth, which many defend, can be established from the language which is employed in reference to the supper, which promises the eating of Christ's body. We therefore believe that Christ's words, this is my body, implies a spiritual and not a physical reality. Matthew Henry, the commentator, agrees. The concise version of his commentary sums it up like this. The flesh and blood of the Son of Man denote the Redeemer in the nature of man, Christ and him crucified, and the redemption wrought out by him, with all the precious benefits of redemption, pardon of sin, acceptance with God, the way to the throne of grace, the promises of the covenant and eternal life. These are called the flesh and blood of Christ, because they are purchased by the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. Also, because they are meat and drink to our souls, we live by him, as the members by the head, the branches by the root, because he lives, we shall live also. Just before we close, we should note Lord's Day 28, question 77, which asks, Where has Christ promised that he will nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood, as surely as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup. The Catechist, in reply to this question, directs us to two texts in 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 23 to 26, and chapter 10, verse 16 to 17. It would be good to read those passages and to make yourself familiar with them. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.